it was so many doctors out there and they didn't register me as a person. I was just a bunch of lab tests and a clipboard and some papers on it. So I was never introduced to them really. They didn't really ask me about how I was doing. They came in the room, looked at my clipboard, went out, ordered a test. Again, the test came back. However, they didn't want it and then they left. It's all in your head. You don't look sick. Your tests are normal. It's probably anxiety. There's nothing wrong with you. Have you heard these words from physicians, family, and friends? If you're someone who has been struggling and swirling through the revolving door of healthcare to find answers about your health, or if you know someone who is going through this experience, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast with Laura Nozika, a show dedicated to exploring the challenges of living with undiagnosed or rare medical conditions. This podcast explores both sides of the bedside. We will be speaking with patients who have had challenges with finding a diagnosis, along with experts in the field. I'm your host, Laura Nozika. Please note I am not a medical professional, nor am I affiliated with any healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device company. I am an entrepreneur, and I am an independent market researcher focused on helping healthcare organizations better understand the patient perspective. The podcast is not meant to offer medical advice, but to merely share the stories and perspectives of podcast guests. Hello, and welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nozika, and I am here today with an amazing young lady. Her name is Olivia Goodrow. And she has so many things to share with us about her journey with Lyme's disease and all of the things that have come out of her experiences. Let me tell you a little bit about Olivia. Olivia was just six years old when she began experiencing aches, tremors, and blackouts. And it took years of excruciating tests and illness before she was diagnosed with Lyme disease and five other tick-borne illnesses. Despite debilitating symptoms and countless hospital visits, Olivia is the founder of Live Lyme Foundation, which is a 501c nonprofit that provides financial assistance to children and their families struggling with Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases, while also supporting the work of researchers and scientists who are dedicated to finding effective treatments and cures for tick-borne diseases. Olivia is also the inventor, that's what I said, inventor of the free global app Tick Tracker and the Tickmoji, is that what it's called? Yes. The Tickmoji's app, I want to hear about that, and recently launched, launched her latest free app, Long Haul Tracker. Also impressive, she has presented at the U.S. Department of Labor, the White House, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Census Bureau, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Stanford University, Harvard University. Oh, my goodness. She's also been to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other various organizations. Plus, she has received numerous awards and commendations. Oh, Wow, you have done a lot in your young, young life thus far. Olivia, it's so nice to meet you. And thanks for being here with your busy, busy schedule. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. It's a pleasure to meet you. So 
Olivia is a, a busy gal. She also has written a book. And uh, tell us, Olivia, the name of your book. Yes. The name of the book is But She Looks Fine from Illness to Activism. Yeah. And Olivia is going to tell us more about her book, but she has been on a whirlwind tour of Europe with her book and has done some book signings recently. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. It was a pleasure meeting all of these incredible people from around the world who are also struggling with or trying to find cures for Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. And it was just a really eye-opening experience to actually meet the people who are trying to fight for tick-borne illnesses and it was so much fun and I learned so much about everybody who I met and it was just really incredible overall. So you have your books and bookstores in Europe as well? Yes, I do have uh, my books and some bookstores in Europe. It's a little bit different since they don't have chains like Barnes and Noble there all the time, but I have some at local bookstores, I have some at airports, and it's just been really nice to see where my book ends up. Yeah. Well, Lyme's, Lyme disease and the some of these other types of you know, less obvious, let's say, conditions or, or diseases are really starting to come to the forefront more. And certainly with your help between your book and your foundation and all of your speaking engagements, People are learning more about Lyme and, and some of these other toxicities. So let's talk a little bit about your journey first. I'd like to learn more about where it all started for you and these symptoms and you know, how you got to the point of, of a treatment. Tell us about that. Yeah, all right. So my family has a house at the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri, and it is a very special place for my family. And so we've been going there every single summer. And the summer, going into my second grade year, when I was just seven years old, I was bitten by a tick. And we did not see the tick, and I did not have a bullseye rash. But we can assume that I was bitten by a tick, probably out catching fireflies. And a few weeks after that trip, that one trip, and I'm starting my second grade year, I started having, as you said earlier, aches and pains. I started having brain fog. I started losing my vision and actually passing out on the floor at only eight years old. And I did that, you know, losing control of my hand. I started having tremors in my right hand. I couldn't physically hold up my head. So my teachers were letting me do my math on the ground. And I felt like I had the flu. I felt absolutely terrible. And it wasn't until one day to where I had this really extreme blackout in front of my second grade teacher where she called my mom and said, hey, you told me that, you know, there's something going on with Olivia's health. I just witnessed it firsthand. And I would then spend 18 months in and out of Colorado Children's Hospital. And I would see over 51 doctors. I had scans, MRIs, EKGs, upper and lower endoscopies. I had a liver biopsy. I had my adenoids removed. And I had over 100 blood draws trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And at first... They said, you know what? You're at the mile high state. You might want to drink some water. You're at high altitude. Like maybe you're just very dehydrated. So as I'm, you know, chugging water and I'm a Colorado native, I know to drink water. So as Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, drinking water, things are getting worse. And, you know, more tests were done and more and more doctors were coming in and then leaving. And it started to become this kind of pattern to where nobody asked me how I was doing. Nobody actually talked to me. They would look at my charts. They would see that something was a little bit off. 
They would send in a test. The test would come back normal or would come back inconclusive. And then they would pass me on to the next doctor. And I felt very ignored from my own health. And I felt very ignored from my own case at that hospital. And then halfway through those 18 months, I was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with Wilson's disease. And if you guys do not know what that is, it is a absolutely horrible disease where you do not live probably past the age of 20. And if you're lucky, you might make it to the age of 40. And so while all the other kids were at spring break and were having fun in Mexico or wherever, I was being told at eight years old that I would not live as long as the other kids would. And that I was not going to live a full and happy life and that I probably wasn't going to go to high school. I probably wasn't going to go to college. And they were telling my parents, you know, do the things that your daughter really wants to do. Do the things that just pull her out of school. And I just was completely heartbroken. I lost hope for a while. I was terrified. I was just mortified that these doctors were telling me this, you know, at eight years old. And that none of my friends would ever experience something like this. And then eventually the DNA test came back saying that it was negative. And although there was so much relief and so much just like happiness that I did not have that illness, we were back at square one. And then the doctors started to turn on me and they started to say, do you feel loved at home? Do you think that your parents love your brothers more than they love you? Do you have friends at school? Are you making this up? And so I was misdiagnosed with Munchausen syndrome, which is the illness of faking illness. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I felt so betrayed. I felt like this whole medical system just abandoned this one case because they couldn't figure anything out from one test. And it wasn't like the doctors tried, tried, tried for weeks on end. They tried for two days and then they would pass me on to the next one. And then my 51st doctor I'm nine years old now. My 51st doctor, who was my first female doctor that I saw, actually, she noticed my symptoms and she said, hey, I had a former patient who had similar symptoms to you. Let me just randomly run this one test and, you know, see if it works. We have no better idea of what's going on. And it was a lab test and it came back and I was the most off the charts positive that Children's Hospital had ever seen. I was so off of the charts. It was like a giant red flashing sign saying, yes, she has it. And so finally, I knew what it was. I was put on 30 days of doxycycline, said that I'd be back to normal. And I was so excited. And to be honest, the 20th day of that treatment, I felt like good. I felt like I was actually making progress. And, you know, I was going to go back to school and I was going to be normal and this whole thing would be over. And then the 30 days ended and I nosedived again and I felt terrible. And that's when my parents realized that we needed to find a Lyme disease specialist. So they went to a couple. Some of them were fine. Some of them weren't fine. And the reason why I have chronic Lyme disease is actually because one doctor kept me from, you know, being in the hospital, kept me from being at that level where I was so sick, but didn't actually work on getting me to feel better at all. And so after that one doctor experience, my mom was like, okay, you know what? We need to find somebody better who's actually going to be proactive and do something. And then we came across my current doctor, Dr. Richard Horowitz. And this was three years later, seeing four more doctors. So I am 12 years old right now. And, and yeah, were all these doctors local to you or did you have to travel? Dr. Horowitz was the first doctor to where I had to travel. 
the one doctor who kept me from, you know, actually making progress when I really was in that time zone to where this is like a chronic or not chronic situation, they were local. They were up in Boulder and it was a very odd experience. And looking back, I feel like I wish someone had told me to do more research. And I feel like that's really important for everyone who is listening is always get a second opinion and always do your research. And so after that one experience, we did tons of research on Dr. Horowitz. We were like, oh my gosh. And we realized that he was one of the best Lyme disease, Lyme literate doctors in the country and in the world. And we were on a wait list for three years trying to get to him. Since my mom was very proactive, the moment I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, she knew that she had to find someone who was going to actually do stuff and was going to actually work to help me out. I finally got off the wait list when I was 12 years old. And the first appointment that I had with him lasted six hours. And he looked through all of my medical records individually. And it was about that big. It was huge. That, yeah. Yeah. And he would flick through every single page. And when he got to the part where I was misdiagnosed with Munchausen syndrome, he quite literally banged his head on the door. And he was so upset that 50 doctors missed everything. And after those six hours, he said, here's what I can tell you. You don't just have blind disease. You have Bartonella. You have Babesia. You have Pott syndrome. You have relapsing fever. And you have an anti-1 tryptophan deficiency. He was able to tell all of that just in one appointment to where 50 doctors missed everything over the course of 18 months. Wow. And he had just done that by just reviewing your chart. He had not done any additional testing at that point. He did a couple of tests and I'm pretty sure, you know, with the anti-1 trypsone deficiency, he had to wait a bit, but you know, he was very confident that I had it. He was confident in everything that he told me in all of his diagnoses. And it was incredible that one person was able to catch what so many other people missed. And he was like, he was going through it and he was like, well, had they done this test when they realized that your copper levels were low, they would have figured it out. So he was quite literally going through it and saying, well, had they waited a bit or had they did this test or had they looked here or had they actually noticed that this was wrong? He was just going through everything and being like, man, there were so many opportunities for them to find out, find out everything. And they just completely did not look. They looked over it. They missed it. Um, And so I was putting on 86 pills a day to deal with all of those illnesses that I had. 86? Yeah. 86. And 86 pills with so supplements, antibiotics, oh, everything. This is your Lyme disease specialist who did that. Is that it, right? Yeah. This is my Lyme literate doctor who, of course, also specializes in co-infections and other tick-borne illnesses since okay. Lyme disease is the poster child for all tick-borne illnesses. However, depending on the person... It could be another co-infection that's actually worse. For me, it was my Bartonella was worse than my Lyme disease. But not a lot of people will recognize, oh, I have Bartonella. A lot of people have a higher chance of recognizing, oh, you have Lyme disease. And so that's why Lyme disease is the poster child for tick-borne illnesses. And so I was put on 86 pills a day and I had IBIG, which is a immunoglobin transfusion. And I had that every two weeks. And I had that for years and that was kind of my life. And I was just, you know, going through it. But although it was so many pills, I was actually making progress and I was slowly but surely getting better. And so I went from 30% originally to 60% 
after one year of taking all these medications. And so what's that, big, that? What's that number? Thirty percent, sixty percent. What's the metric there? So my doctor says that a hundred percent is you're back to normal. You're energetic. You feel fine. Like you feel like you're cured. Zero percent is you feel like you're on your deathbed. You feel like you're dying. I feel like I was at 30% where I felt absolutely miserable, but not miserable enough to where it was such an emergency that I felt like I was, you know, dying. Like I was like entering this almost like fight or flight stage. And so I feel like I started at 30%. Dr. Horwitz made me get to 60% within a year compared to all these other past doctors that weren't able to do anything or tried and didn't work out or just basically did not know enough to get me any better and I again was slowly starting to get better and then before my high school career started I decided to go on a Dapsone treatment and Dapsone is a 100 year old leprosy drug that my doctor found out was actually working against fighting and killing Lyme disease spirit kids and so he said, hey, I have this patient. She was on DAPSA, but she accidentally doubled the dose and now she's feeling great. So before my high school career started, I did a month of double dose DAPSA and I went from 60% to 85%. Oh, wow. And I absolutely incredible. And I was, you know, oh my gosh, like this was incredible. I had not felt like this good in how many years? In six years almost and I was astounded that you know this one generic drug was able to help me out this much now you're on some maintenance treatment it sounds like right are you on anything right now nope oh you want God. me to talk about that uh, yeah for sure I think I think that it would bring a lot of hope to people listening and Dr. Horowitz might be very busy after our conversation, but yes. So after the, the 80, so 86 pills a day was the protocol, right? That was the protocol. And then I went on the double dose Dapsone treatment right before high school, which took my 86 pills a day down to just a handful. Well, so it just eliminated probably, I would say 80% of those medications just gone. They're somewhere in my cabinet now, you know, just in case on a rainy day, I need them. But it was incredible that I have been doing all these medications and drugs for so long. And then one month later, it's like, you don't have to take them anymore. You're like, it's okay if you don't take them. And I, you know, was almost like a little bit afraid, like, oh my gosh, if I don't take this, like, is everything gonna, you know, go up in flames? And he was like, nope, like, you're at 80% right now. Like, this is where you're going to be for a while. And it was incredible. And I had a great high school experience at 80%. I was able to do so much more and be a much more normal kid than I was in middle school where I was at 60%. Mm -hmm. And this year, early this year, my doctor found out that another patient of his who was on the double Dapsone treatment accidentally doubled the double dose of Dapsone. So quadruple dose of Dapsone. Gosh. That patient was like, I think I'm cured. I think I feel amazing. Like, this is incredible. So I went on the quadruple dose Dapsone treatment starting January. It was 42 pills a day for nine weeks with the last six days being the full quadruple dose Dapsone. The nine weeks was to slowly but surely ramp me up to that dosage. 
And to be completely honest with you, it sucked. It was terrible. I dropped back down to a 60, maybe a 50% after, you know, being at 80% feeling normal. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And, you know, some days I even like regretted doing it. I was like, maybe I just should have, you know, settled for the 80%. And I would have had a Lyme day every now and then, but it would have been worth it. And the goal was at the very end, if you can get seven days of quadruple dose Dapsone in, that's the best that you can do. If you need to do at least four days. I was able to do six. On the sixth day, I tapped out. I was, I felt like I was going to end up in the hospital. I felt absolutely horrible. That was my 30%. I felt like, man, I had just been bitten by a tick. This is the worst day ever. And so we stopped it. And it was like a cold turkey stop. Just stopped all the medication. I had done, you know, more than four days, which was the goal. And a week went by. I was like, wow, I feel amazing. This is so strange because I just felt horrible like a couple days ago. And then another week went by and I just was like, oh my gosh, like I feel like I'm on top of the world. And so I had a meeting with my doctor and he was like, Olivia, you're in remission. And for people in the Lyme disease world, that is the best thing that can happen to you. We don't have cures yet. There's no cure available out there, but Remission means that all of the bacteria and the spherikids and everything like that is in a coma-like stage. It means that it's dormant and it means that it's the closest you're going to get to a cure. And so I was ecstatic. I was like, oh my gosh. I'm generous. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't think 80%, just knowing your, a bit about your background and you and your personality, I don't think 80% would be a place where Olivia would stop. <laughs> Going all the way. Yeah. And actually had a conversation about, okay, now you can't get bit by another tick now. He told me that. He was like, all right, now I have to, you know, make sure that, you know, you don't get bit by another tick. He was like, Olivia, if you get bit by another tick, I'm going to be pissed off at you. <laughs> well, that's some tough love from a doctor, but that's all good stuff. How, how do people protect themselves from ticks? Absolutely. So you can treat your clothing with permethrin spray. You can treat your backyards and your gardens and your greenhouses with Promethean spray. It's absolutely incredible. And it just, you know, it absolutely repels the ticks. It does not kill any other insects. So for those people out there who, you know, love the butterflies and ladybugs and everything like that, don't worry, it will not be harming them at all. And there's also different types of ways to, you know, treat your lawns. You can have it sprayed. You can have these little cotton balls that mice will take back to their dens. And mice are carriers of ticks, so they will kill the ticks in there. And of course, you can always protect yourself by, you know, doing tick checks. And if you want more information about how to properly do that, on my app, Tick Tracker, there is a lot of information about where you can go to, you know, get tested for tick bites, to get your tick tested. And also how you can do tick checks and where you can get tick safe items of clothing, how to, you know, stay protected out there. That's quite the resource. And yes, I do want to talk more about that. What I'd like to go back to is this journey with all these physicians. What type of physicians were you seeing and who are doing all these tests for you? What were their specialties? To be completely honest with you, I do not remember. It was so many doctors out there and they didn't register me as a person. I was just a bunch of lab tests and a clipboard and some papers on it. So I was never introduced to them, really. They didn't really ask me about how I was doing. 
They came in the room, looked at my clipboard, went out, ordered a test. Again, test came back. However, they didn't want it and then they left. And so I have no clue. I'm sure that some of them are pediatricians at first, probably some kind of, I don't know, radiologists. There was no, yeah, there was no blind literate doctor in the room, unfortunately, who could have been like, hey, this is what it is. Let's get you on the proper medications. They were mainly interacting with your your family then at that barely. point. Oh, barely. Yeah, it was it was very I feel like my mom especially was very disrespected because I feel like at that point they probably thought that we were both making it up, that we both had Munchausen syndrome and were, you know, riding off of this feeling of being sick and whatever. And I'm sure that maybe they talked to her a couple of times, but not as much as they should have. And yeah, so I hope that, you know, in the future, hopefully they will, you know, take more into consideration the patient's opinions and what the patient says and not what the clipboard says. Uh-huh. And not what the clipboard says. I, I like that. As a as a child going through all of this and having this experience, where where are you now in terms of your impressions of the health system now you're older and you've started this foundation you've written a book you're offering all these resources what's your what's your impression of of doctors etc because again you're you're young and you know there's lots of life for you ahead how are you thinking about the health system now i still feel like in regards to tick-borne illnesses it hasn't gotten much better and so i hope that you know what I'm doing and spreading awareness really does help. There was, I recently ended up back at the Children's Hospital, I think a couple months ago or maybe a while ago, but there was a doctor in there and he said, he looked at my file and he goes, oh, you have Lyme disease. And I was like, yes, I do. And he had two interns or I don't know, probably trained doctor trainees in there with him. And he was like, did you know that we've never had a case of Lyme disease here at Children's Hospital? And he said that to the trainees. And I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me? And so, you know, I'm and I'm older and, you know, I have a voice. And, you know, after, you know, doing this for 12 years now, I'm not, you know, seven years old and terrified and barely seeing straight because I'm so sick anymore. I didn't kind of, you know, I've had a voice and I've been at a school a high school to where they want you to have a voice they're very empowering for young women like me and I turned to him and like no you did have a Lyme disease case actually you dismissed it and good for you yeah (laughs) he looked he looked at me like he had just gotten like slapped across the face like he looked so offended and I was like yeah you know I was here for you know 18 months I was in and out of the hospital saw 51 doctors the 51st got me, so 50 of you guys missed it. And I wonder how much more you guys have missed. And he actually left the room. He was really upset with me that he left the room. And the trainees stayed in there, and I was with my mom because, you know, I was still a minor at the time. And we were like, listen, like, if you guys can, you guys need to, you know, recognize more signs of tick-borne illnesses. Like, please do that because you might be the doctor out of those 50 to figure out what is wrong with a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I feel like now that I am a more proactive person and I'm older, I'm more mature, and I most definitely have a voice of my own, I feel like I am willing to 
stand up more to the medical system when I need to. I mean, it's not always, you know, their fault that they haven't gotten the right training or don't know about it. There are so many illnesses out there. And the big thing is just that it's not an East Coast thing. Lyme disease is not an East Coast thing. Lyme disease is not a West Coast thing. It's everywhere in the world, including on penguins in Antarctica. There are different types of tick-borne illnesses. And I feel like for all those doctors out there, just really be aware of, you know, diseases out there, especially tick-borne illnesses. And training and, you know, when you go to med school, they actually don't talk about Lyme disease or any tick-borne illnesses. So there's any, you know, person out there who wants to go to med school, maybe advocate for a class or a course on Lyme disease or at least some type of way to, you know, figure out what symptoms are, how can you diagnose it, how can you treat it? Because it is a very time-sensitive illness. Mm-hmm. How did, do you know how your family found Dr. Horowitz? My mom, at the moment I was diagnosed with Lyme disease when I was nine years old, she researched her butt off. She was, you know, Googling everything. She was like, okay, what is Lyme disease? How do you spell Lyme disease? She was just really wanting to familiarize herself with it since now I had it. And she was looking at the best doctors and found Dr. Horowitz was right on up there. And I believe that he had just come out with the book, Why Can't I Get Better? And How Do I Get Better? Or two books that he has, which I highly recommend reading. And my mom was like, okay, he seems really legit. There are, there's a 10 year waiting list for him. Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. You were on that wait list for three years before I was able to get to see him. So definitely my mom researched a ton out of it. When I was misdiagnosed with Wilson's disease, she found the best Wilson's disease specialist in the country. She was about to send me off to him and get me figured out over there. And Dr. Horowitz being this wine specialist, what's his background? Do you know what his initial boarded specialty is? What what makes a Lyme specialist? Well, although I can't say for sure how he got into the field of chronic Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses, his wife, who's absolutely amazing, has Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. And so he is also very big on, you know, nutrition, on gut health, on making sure that every other part of your body is healthy, on making sure that you have a healthy diet, a healthy mind. And so he really focuses on the whole and with all of his tests and studies and everything that he does. So I feel like the way that he does his practice, it isn't something to where it's like money-based to where maybe some other doctors are like, oh, I do it for the money or, you know, something like that. He does it really because he loves his family and he also loves his patients and so he does it with a lot of care and I think that that's why I feel so amazing and I think that that's why he's come so far in finding the closest thing to a cure. Yeah and has a three to ten year wait list. You'd like to hope that most doctors have this altruistic philosophy of taking care of patients but as we know the health system as it's designed doesn't always allow for that and and you're right training can be inadequate in, in certain aspects as well. In fact, I just had a podcast guest whose son had had Lyme yeah. disease and is saying very similar things that you are in terms of this journey to get diagnosed and making assumptions that he was autistic and some of these other things that 
he was misdiagnosed with uh, like yourself. So of all of this, I always like to talk about the silver linings and tell me, Olivia, about the silver linings that have come from all of this. And there seem to be so, so many. So let's talk about how you've taken, as they say, make your mess, your message. And you've done more than, than just that. Tell me about what you're up to and what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was 12 years old, and this was before the double dose, the quadruple dose Absone treatments, all of that, I was still on about 86 pills a day. I decided to create the Live Climb Foundation. And the reason why I decided to do that was because as, you know, I'm processing that I still have this illness that, you know, doesn't have a cure. The research and medication is like 40 years behind what it should be. And there's no funding from the government, from anything. Even the CDC is having funding issues for tick-borne illnesses. And I'm researching about other patients. And I'm like, okay, well, what are other people doing? What other kids have Lyme disease? What are they doing? Are they doing similar treatments? Is everyone on the same treatment? Is everyone doing different treatments? And so I'm on my mom's Facebook page and I'm looking through and I just type in chronic Lyme disease, treatments, cures. I'm going through the whole list. And I come across a story about a mom and her son and they were living in their car so they could afford the boy's Lyme disease medication. They had sold their apartment. They were barely getting by and it was just for a couple pills. And that really stuck with me. It really hit me that there are so many people out there that have it so much worse and I could either be sitting around here and moping and hoping for somebody to do something about it or I could be the one to do something about it and so I went up to my mom at 12 years old and I was like hey hear me out I have this idea I want to start my own nonprofit." Its name is going to be the Live Lyme Foundation because my name is Olivia. My friends call me Liv and I'm living with Lyme disease and we're going to help kids get funding, but I want to be cured and I know that everybody else wants to be cured. So we're also going to help scientists get funding. And January 9th, what did she say when you, when you told her at 12 years old, how do you even come up with an idea like that when most 12 year olds are more worried about what's going on, uh, you know, video games and social media and and whatever. So how does a 12-year-old even come up with that idea or know about a not-for-profit? My mom and my grandma and our whole family are very invested in nonprofits and service work. And so here in Denver, I've participated at Dolls for Daughters a few years. My grandma has a nonprofit of her own. And my mom used to run nonprofits for my middle school. And she had just retired from that. She had just, you know, said, hey, I don't want to do any more nonprofit work. You know, I'm going to pass this on to somebody else. And I'm pretty sure a week later, that was when I asked about having a nonprofit. And I think not Almost for retiring. <laughs> Literally, I think that she was like, oh, no. Like, wow, that sucks. But, you know, she was very supportive and she was like, here's what we're going to do. We have to do our research first. If there is somebody out there who's doing what you want to do, then we're just going to support them. We're not going to compete for them. And so we did our research. There were people and nonprofits out there who were helping scientists. There were people helping Lyme disease patients, but there wasn't anyone doing kids and scientists and also 12 years old. So we were like, okay, maybe we have a shot. 
Yes. And so we had our 501c3 um, official January 19th of 2017. And the first 15 minutes after we uploaded our website, we had our first donation and we had our first grant application. Oh my God. And that's because, okay, first off, the parents and Lyme disease patients are very tech savvy because this just appeared 15 minutes ago. And on top of that, now we have a mission. There are people out there who want help and now want our help. And so this is legit. This is real. This wasn't some kind of like hobby that I could put on my high school resume or something. At that time, I wasn't even thinking about high school. So when you read a lot of the stories, you read, and this is a really big thing, and this is kind of why I have lived Lyme, is that a lot of kids lose their childhoods due to Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses. I know a lot of people who have dropped out of school and college because of Lyme disease. And so at that time, I was kind of getting worried that I wasn't going to make it to high school. So when I started the nonprofit, it wasn't because I wanted to get into high school. I mean, come on, it's high school. And so I was like, okay, this is real. This is legit. Now we're going to do this. And so Live Lime took off. I had, as of now, which is, we've had Live Lime for six years now. We've had over 900 grant applications so far, all around the U.S. and including Canada and Australia. But unfortunately, we can't do those right now because they're out of the country. But we're working hard on it. We have been able to give dozens of grants to all of those people. And I read every single grant application. I will get multiple books this big. Not every single application on paper, I will read it. It's my favorite and least favorite part. I cry the entire time. I'm a sobbing hot mess. I reading all these incredible stories and if I could give a grant to everyone who applies I would absolutely in a heartbeat and who is asking for the grant are they other organizations or are they families or who's asking they are kids so live Lyme we donate and we provide funding for kids who cannot afford their Lyme disease medications and so kids range from zero to 21 those are our ages our age range. And most of the time, it's the parents who are creating the applications, moms and dads, guardians, grandparents. And most of the time, they have more than one kid with Lyme disease. So they'll do it for their entire family, all of their kids. They will write applications for all of their kids. And more often than not, the mom also has Lyme disease because you can pass Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses through utero. And so a lot of moms realized too late hey i was bitten by a tick you know while i was pregnant and my kid now has the exact same illness exact same symptoms oh my god i had no idea okay and recently the cdc was able to have the green light to put that on their website and that was something that we were really trying to work hard on because they do recognize that that can happen however it for some reason, it took forever for them to get it on their website. So we were really happy when that finally became available. But yes, and occasionally there will be, you know, a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old like me who will write their own application and say, hey, I'm at this college or I'm taking an online school. I'm not doing any college at all. I want to go to college. I want to get a job. I want to have a life. Like, here is my story. And so we ask very basic, simple things. We say, okay, well, what state are you from? Tell us your story. And, you know, we say tell us your story. And these moms, these parents will write pages and pages about their kid. And that's how you know that this isn't someone who's trying to just get the money 
that's how you know that they're a Lyme disease related issue because they have so much to talk about and we're finally people who are able to listen to them they talked about how they were misdiagnosed they talked about how insurance companies dropped them they talked about how they had divorces how they had to move out of their homes how they had to sell everything how they had to quit their jobs how they got laid off everything like that because their kids were suffering with Lyme disease and how they can't afford it and how they really need help and we also talk about if they you know got tested for Lyme disease if they had the test if they have tests for co-infections, if they are seeing a Lyme literate doctor currently, if they need to see a Lyme literate doctor, I will read through all of that and I will rate it one out of three. Three is being, this is the most desperate family. One is being, okay, maybe they can wait till next year. More often than not, it's all twos and threes. I don't think I've ever really put a one down at all. And it's a, such a difficult process, but I love it so much because when I choose the grant families, it, first off, it takes multiple rounds. I feel like it's almost like what college admission people do. But multiple rounds. And then when I finally decide who gets a grant for that year, I call the parents. I call the recipients. I'm always the one on the other end of the phone. And I say, hi, my name is Olivia Goodrow. I was the Live Lime Foundation. And I have to say very fast because a lot of them will hang up on me because they think that I'm a spam. Right. And I will say, you know, your daughter or your son so-and-so has received a live grant. And then... I talk with them for a little bit. They, you know, tell me their story and I tell them mine. And it's really nice because I get to connect to the parents who are fighting so hard. And then sometimes I even get to talk to the grandkids. And so actually, I don't even know if you can see this, but I have pen pals that are all live line oh, grandkids. I see that. It's all up on my wall over here, but they're oh. all letters. All them, and so I always keep up Maybe you can um, take a take a picture of your wall and and send it, and we can post it on my website or or somewhere like that, or plug it into into the video. But uh, yeah, that's so. What does the money go for for the families that that do get the grants? So the grants it goes for doctor's appointments, it goes for medications. Unfortunately, we do not do therapy animals just because in the past we've had. Some families tried to get like emotional support horses or just like other emotional support animals. And it's been a very difficult slope. So we just say, you know, we're really going to be focused on, you know, more of like the medical side of it. Uh, but the doctor's appointments, tests, medications, there's other kinds of like therapies that they need as well. But they never see a dime. We always pay directly to whatever they're asking for. That way there's just no like confusion or no mix-up to where they're like, hey, sorry, I had to use this for groceries or I had to use this for gas. That way it just goes straight to the kid. Right. Uh, that way, yes, you know, ensure that, uh, you know, it's straight directly to the kid for their health. But yeah, so those are what we focus on primarily. Obviously, it's not just you and your mom. You must have a, a team working with you. We have two to three people we all work from my home and they are absolutely incredible our first gala was just my mom and i and that was oh pretty it was just my mom and i we had our family members help set up everything but really just the two of us and it was a lot and then we realized that you know we actually need you know some employees some people that can actually help us and i feel like overall our team isn't just who's working at the house we have our app developers who help us and who help work with us, whether it's website, whether it's apps, everything like that. So I feel like our team is 
around the world. There's so many people who are. Yeah. How many, how many kids would you say, Olivia, have some level of Lyme disease or other tick-borne illnesses? Do you have an idea of an approximate number in the U.S.? So actually, nobody actually knows how many people and how many kids have Lyme disease. They know that it's over millions, though. And 200 kids a day get bitten by a tick. And that's the size of about four school buses of kids that get bitten by a tick each day. That doesn't mean that they're diagnosed with Lyme disease or any other tick-borne illness, though. So people are like, oh, around, you know, 750,000 people a year get diagnosed with Lyme disease. But that doesn't count for everybody else who doesn't know because only 40% of people who get bitten by a tick get the rash, which is the biggest indicator mm -hmm. that you have a tick. So think that that's 750,000 people who get diagnosed. That's just the 40% of people who get a rash. Wow. So, so is that just a simple blood test or what kind of test is that? So it, it is, it's not simple. <laughs> There's a lot of false negatives. There's a few false positives at times. I believe it is a blood test of some kind. You have to do the Western blot test and you can also take a test on IgenX, which with all of our grandkids, we give them a free IgenX test. This ensures that they know exactly what diseases their kid has. IgenX, they are absolutely incredible. They have 99% accuracy when diagnosing tick-borne illnesses. And if I would highly recommend it. If you want to know exactly what you have, do that. Because they will let you know if you have co-infections. They will let you know if you have Lyme disease. And so with all of our grandkids, we send them the test, obviously, because we want to make sure that they're aware of exactly what they're dealing with. So what is the sample then? Again, is it blood or is it saliva or what it's, is that? I believe that it's blood. Like, okay. But, yes. But sometimes, you know, testing is also a very big issue as well. And actually someone at UCLA, Dr. Oskin, has invented a test that's the size of your thumbnail and it takes one drop of blood and it can tell you what diseases and co-infections you have. You can probably buy it at Walmart whenever it gets out to stores. It's incredible. It works. I've seen it work. And the only issue is funding, though. You can't get it out yet. And it's such a cost-effective, accurate test, but there's no funding. And so I hope that when I go to UCLA this fall, I will be able to work with him and help him on that. What will you major in? What's your plan? As of now, I'm majoring in political science because after doing this for a while now, the people who have the biggest voices are the ones who are in the government. And they, especially in Congress, they're the ones who say what bills can be passed and what bills can't be. And so I'm hoping that, you know, maybe eventually what if I'm on Congress and I can be a voice for all the people with tick-borne illnesses. Instead of me trying to convince somebody else to do it, I can be the person who doesn't need any convincing, who will be like, yeah, I will fight for this. Being that you've been on the Hill, what have you learned about our government's philosophy on health? It's very interesting about health. I would say that I would knock on every single door in Congress and the Senate and the House because obviously ticks do not discriminate. They do not care the color of your skin, who you voted for, what you look like, if you're a girl or a boy. They do not care about your favorite ice cream flavor. They will bite you nonetheless. And so I feel like if we're going to actually solve this, we have to work with everyone. That way we can help everyone. The 
major connection that everybody in Congress has is that when I say Lyme disease or a tick-borne illness, they all say, oh, my niece had that. Oh, my wife has that. Oh, I have that. Oh, my daughter has that. So it's very interesting that they all have someone out there who they know who has it or have it. But I feel like the philosophy on health, it's very difficult. Lyme disease is a tricky subject because some people do not believe that it is a true, real illness. Some people believe that it can be easily cured and that it's not a chronic illness at all. And so you have to break that barrier first if you want to get any progress done. And that's why awareness is so important. And I feel like overall health, you have to almost look at it from a corporate side because a lot of corporate companies, they they enjoy when people are sick because then they make money off of the medications that they sell. And so it's very difficult to try and get stuff done when, you know, you're fighting the insurance companies who won't even allow more than 30 days of doxycycline out there. And I had to testify against an insurance company in Maryland because they only had 28 days. So I had to fight against an insurance company for two more days of a medication that didn't work, really. Well, I can see the campaign now, Olivia. It's very clear in my mind. Tell us about the book. All right. So my book talks about my nonprofit a lot, and it talks about my apps. I have Tick Tracker and the Long Haul Tracker. Tick Tracker is a free global app in multiple languages that lets you see what ticks are in your area in real time using geolocation. We have data from everywhere from a Pakistani goat farmer. We have the Smithsonian. We have the CDC and HHS, public and private companies, universities, everything like that. It's free. It's absolutely incredible. Scientists are using it for their studies. And I created it when I was about 13 years old. I was also able to participate in the HHS Opportunity Project, which was a 14-week tech sprint that lets you see what new tech tools are out there solving world problems. And Tick Tracker won against Oracle and IBM and Microsoft and a ton of other companies who were out there. You visited the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You had yes. that. Yeah. What was that like? They are very interested in using TikToker for developing countries that rely on cattle as an economy because ticks have the ability to kill cattle. They will suck the cattle dry of blood. And so they feel like TikToker can be used to see tick outbreaks, tick migration, new tick species, and just really protect those developing countries and their economies. So that has been incredible so far. And a bunch of other companies, including the CDC, NHHS, those government organizations, they are all for Tick Tracker and its use. And it has been such an amazing journey with that. And then when COVID hit, we started realizing that there was a connection between COVID long haulers and chronic Lyme disease patients. And at first, we were thinking about creating a Lyme disease symptom tracking app. But then after COVID, we said, hey, why don't we do any disease? So the long haul tracker is a free app which allows you to track any range of symptoms from any illness. And you can share with your family, with your healthcare providers, and even enroll in studies. And right now, Tufts University is using the long-haul tracker in a tick-borne disease study funded by the NIH. And University of Southern California is also using the long-haul tracker in a COVID study with NIH. So, so far, it's been absolutely incredible. It's free, it's easy to use, and I highly recommend downloading both. So 
I just talked about those two things very quickly, but I have a lot of other things that I would love to talk about. Olivia, tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were in school and in dealing with this illness. What what were you thinking about your school experience? How did kids treat you? So starting in second grade, when, you know, I had this brand new mystery illness that I was leaving all the time, I didn't realize it was that bad until kids started sending me get well cards. Because, you know, when your friend has the flu in second grade, they come back a few days later and you don't have to send a get well card and you don't have the entire class send a get well card. And when I finally had my diagnosis in third grade, I was like, okay, I should probably tell people. And it was very hard as a third grader being like, wow, okay, let me try and convince you that I'm not contagious. And of course, there are people who were like, okay, completely understand. Like, we still love you. We're still your friends. I was gone for trips to the doctors and I would leave for Congress. I had my nonprofit to run. And so I would be gone every other weekend. And there were some people who were like, oh my gosh, she's leaving again for vacation is what they would tell other people. They right. would say, she's gone for vacation. She's lying. Like, she's fine. They would say, but she looks fine. That would be the whole thing. And here you had had this whole experience with physicians who were presuming that you were lying then, and now you're hearing it from some classmates. It was really hard knowing that you would be judged solely not by who you were as a person, but by a foreign inhabitor inside of you, by a parasite and by a name and by Lyme disease. Like you would just be judged by that word. Being in middle school with an invisible illness, it was hard because they couldn't see rashes or boils or something. And so they said, you're faking it. You're lying. You look okay. You look fine. And I hear that from people that I interview who say it's so hard to talk with family and friends when they don't understand that you look fine, you don't look sick, and yet you have to you have to lay down to take a rest several times a day. Or why can't you go to the party? Why can't you go for a walk? When when your own family or friends dismiss your symptoms, how would you cope with something like that? Well, in middle school, and I'm sure that a lot of people listening now might also relate to this, um, I was a big Percy Jackson fan. I loved Percy Jackson with all of my heart. And if you read my memoir, you will find some little Percy Jackson Easter eggs if you've read the book so far. But the premise of that whole series is that these kids who have dyslexia or ADHD or some kind of learning disability or disadvantage turns out that they are powerful demigods who can actually do incredible things that just regular normal mortals don't understand and so I'm reading these books and I'm like you know what I can't do soccer but I can stand up to people in congress I can pass bills I can raise money I can beat out companies in a tech sprint when I don't have a PhD or haven't even graduated from middle school yet, I can do all these things. And you know what? They just don't understand. And I feel like having that, you know, book series kind of guided me through how to cope with it was very nice to have. And I felt like I became a lot more mature. And a lot of people said, oh, you have an old soul. Like, 
you're very mature. And I was like, you know, thanks. It's because of the trauma, but you know, and I feel like it was a really great coping mechanism was to, you know, kind of find a connection between this book series and what I was dealing with. And it made me feel like, okay, it's not all bad. It's just different. Well, you certainly are wise beyond your years. I'm sure people have told you that and definitely an overachiever. And those kids who are just kicking a ball around at some point in life will realize everything that you have done at a young age. And I'm sure they will be more than envious, no doubt. So Olivia, you had a book that came out not too long ago this year. Is that right? We talked about your your book tour, but what led up to writing the book? How did you get to that point? And what do you think about being an author? It's kind of crazy being an author at only 18 years old. I wasn't able to put it on my college applications because I had finished it too late. That's prioritization for you. I decided to write my memoir because I realized that when I was at my lowest, when I was dealing with this, it would have been really nice had somebody had told me, hey, you're not alone. Here's what happened to me. Here's what you can do. It's going to get better. And I figured that, you know, there are so many kids out there and there are so many people who are still getting bitten by ticks and diagnosed with tick-borne illnesses and struggling with tick-borne illnesses. And I decided to write my book to really describe what it was like of me living with an invisible illness while trying to navigate school, while trying to navigate my activist life and while trying to, you know, figure out who I was as a person and really, you know, dive into who I wanted to become, whether that was with Lyme disease or without Lyme disease. And I really wanted people to understand that an illness does not define you and it does not make you a tragedy. It can make you something more heroic. And I feel like this novel and this memoir is going to help a lot of people, whether they have a tick-borne illness or not. It's really just a book about overcoming a struggle and, you know, turning limes into limeade. And I love that. That's why I wore my kind of lime colored top today because I love it. I wanted to support the the foundation and your your signature colors for sure. Yeah, that's so, that's so cool. All that you've done, again, at such a, a young age, I can't even imagine what's next for you. Much bigger things, I am sure. What advice would you give parents, Olivia, who are dealing with trying to get their child diagnosed with mystery symptoms? That could be Lyme disease or, or maybe not, but, but what advice would you give them? And what, do you, what advice would you give kids? Absolutely. So for parents out there, I would say do not give up on yourself, but more importantly, do not give up on your kid. If there are a dozen doctors saying that your kid is making it up, I would really hope that you would still believe your child. And if my mom had just said, yeah, well, now she has Munchausen syndrome, she's making it up, I would be stuck in my bed still. I would probably be in the hospital still. And I would absolutely say always get a second opinion. Never stop fighting for your kid's health. I'm sure that you all are amazing parents and would never stop fighting for your kid's health anyways. But it's just really important to know that your kid look up to you. And especially at that time for me, my parents were the only ones who were believing me at that time, who were only they were the only ones who would listen to me and support me and were really taking care of me. You never know when you could turn around the corner and get a diagnosis or get the next cure or remission treatment. And for the kids out there, do not give up hope, please. 
I feel like hope is what got me to this point. Hope is what got me to my diagnosis originally. And also just now, sometimes doctors are not right about everything. It took 51 doctors for me to just get diagnosed with one thing. And so if some doctor is, you know, not treating you like you should be treated and is not following that golden rule and you feel like they're ignoring you, tell your parents. And if you think that they are wrong, it's okay to disagree with them. And it's okay to get a second opinion and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I don't think that's it. Can we, you know, do something else? Can we, you know, try something else? And so, you know, absolutely do not give up hope. It's really important that you share everything and be honest with yourself and, you know, be honest with your parents and really, you know, speak you have to use your voice because nobody knows yourself better like you do and so if you're able to share what's going on inside of your body it will help you so much more you got it well i love talking about patient advocacy on my podcast and the premise of going with your gut and really listening to your intuition so i i love talking about that because Usually it means you're right when something doesn't feel right or feels off. You you have to go with it and and trust that. This, Olivia, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much for being with me today. I wish you all good things because I have a feeling that there's nothing but the best coming your way. And if I could, I would 100% vote for you. And who knows, maybe I'll get that opportunity when you're running for Congress or even something bigger, who knows, but I'll definitely be following you in your young life and your journey and all the best to you in college, UCLA, right? Yes. Yeah. Very impressive. All right. Well, thank you again, Olivia. Thanks everyone for being with me today. Stay well. Oh my goodness. That's a wrap on another compelling story. Thanks for listening to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. If you would like more information about today's guests or to find out more about Laura, me, go to DesperateForADiagnosis.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow show updates and healthcare news on the podcast's Facebook page. If you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have any questions, advice, or suggestions for our guests, please email me at lauramarie at desperateforadiagnosis.com.